All right. All right, so we've been in, we, we, two weeks ago, we finished Romans 10. And a couple weeks before that, we talked about the significance of Romans 9 through 11 as a unit and what Paul's trying to accomplish in that. Romans 9 and Romans 11, in my mind, are two of the most controversial, not because of what they teach, but because of how people interact with them and what they, they debate a lot about them. Romans 9 and Romans 11 are two significant chapters. So two weeks ago, we finished Romans chapter 10. Last week, I was preaching elsewhere. Mike taught a little bit of a different message. And then next week, we're doing somewhat of like a Christmas sort of reflection uh, sermon. So we're not going to be in Romans. And so today, because of the significance of Romans 11, I didn't want to kind of red light, green light Romans 11. So I'm going to do a couple verses, take a break next week, and then come... So I'm going to talk about something different today, and then in two weeks we're going to plow through Romans 11 because I think it's important to not have any breaks in between that chapter because it's a very significant chapter to many in the evangelical church. Today I want to talk about something a little different. And a lot of this has to do with conversations that we've had, we being myself, members of the leadership team, conversations we've had with members of the church, Conversations that we had with the leadership team two, a couple weeks ago, a conversation I had with the D group leaders yesterday. I want to talk about something a little different that is going to help us understand a, a, a slight a change. It's not even slight. It's a change that we're making beginning in January that will affect all the D groups in the church. It's better than it sounds, believe me. <laughs> But I want to talk about this, and the way I want to frame this is something that Paul said in the end of Colossians chapter 1. Paul is, this is a church that Paul has never been to. It's a largely non-Jewish, it's a Gentile church. It was planted by a colleague of Paul's named Epaphras. And Paul is writing to them, not because he knows them or planted the church, but because he has a responsibility as the apostle to the Gentiles to interact with them and communicate with them. So, so Paul writes a letter to the Colossians, and it's a largely encouraging letter. He's unaware of who they are in terms of his own interaction with them, but he writes about them with affection because the pastor who planted the church, Epaphras, has told him a lot about this particular church. But there are two verses in the five that we're going to read this morning that we're going to key in on that help us understand Something that I think it may not be for those of us in this room, but I think is largely forgotten. Largely forgotten, or at least, at least not in the forefront of our minds as believers. So I'm going to read these five verses beginning in Colossians 1, beginning in chapter 20, verse 24, reading through to verse 29. Let's read this together and I quote. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for you, and I am completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for his body, that is, the church. I have become its servant according to God's commission that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery, hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. God wanted to make known among the Gentiles, the glorious wealth of this mystery in which, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. 
We proclaim him, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. I labor for this, striving with his strength that works powerfully in me. Now, those of us who have heard the last few sermons, we hear, even in these five verses, familiar language, right? We hear familiar language of Paul talking about salvation and God's plan to include non-Jewish people into this plan of salvation, which prior to Jesus coming was not clearly understood by the Jews who were God's people. Sure, we had moments like Jonah, where he goes to Nineveh. But a lot of the relational dynamics between Jews and Gentiles was more going to war. And in that process, you may take some of those people as your spoils. They could become your slaves. Jews didn't have a real functioning category of Gentiles being included into the plan of salvation. And so when Jesus comes and then he dies and rises from the dead and then the gospel is being preached, the main dynamic is, wait a minute, how are these people a part of God's family as Gentiles and they're Jews? You're saying they're not. That's the main tension. So Paul is speaking to this tension. But, but in this passage, Paul keys in on a responsibility of his that I believe extends to us. You know, churches go through many transitions. We try different, different ways of engaging each other. We switch up the, the group structures. We, we try different challenges. We, we, we move people in different places. We, people transition out. Some go to different churches. New people come to churches, and there's all this movement. Most churches are always in some degree a transitional state. Almost every church has people coming and going. Even if they stay for 15, 20 years, sometimes they stay for a few months. Sometimes they never leave, but churches are just transient. This is always movement. And in that, there's a lot of different things that you try. Then you have the cultural dynamics. Many of us would agree that we're living in a cultural moment that is vastly different from what we've seen in a long time, some of us in our whole lives. I talk to people who are mature in the faith, have lived longer in grace. And they've said things like, man, I've never seen what I'm seeing today happen in the culture and in the church. You have a pandemic like COVID that, that comes out of nowhere and knocks all of us down. And everyone's trying to figure out, how do we live? Are we going to live? What does this look like? What do we do? And pastors are scrambling. There's no rule book. There's no passage that says, all right, here's what we do in a pandemic. Here's what we do when the church doesn't gather. And then the, because of that, you have, to, you have to live with that. And then now, all of a sudden, almost two years later, expectations get created. Things that no one would have ever asked for are now expected to do. Churches go through many transitions. Our church has been many transitions. I've been here 13 years as a pastor. And I've preached in front of groups that look vastly different than it does now. There are different means and approaches that every church makes. But there are a couple things that must always stay the same. They must always be remembered 
And wherever you're at, whether it's this church, whether it's another church, if you're watching online or in this room, this must always be in the forefront of our minds as believers. Because it guides what we do. I read five verses, but we're only going to focus on one and a half. And I'm going to answer just three questions. What do we do? How do we do it? And why do we do it? Normally, pastors preach this kind of message at the first Sunday of the new year to kind of cast a new vision. I'm preaching it now because in January, we're going to implement a brief new vision. And I want to share that in the process of this message. First, what do we do? Reading from verse 27 again. God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So what do we do? We proclaim him. We proclaim him. But what's important to recognize in this passage is the aspect of him, spoiler alert, Christ, that we're proclaiming. You see, in many ways, the Christ that we preach has been reduced to the crucifixion. We think about preaching the gospel, we think Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Sometimes we'll add the resurrection, right? But we're mostly sort of substitutionary atonement, right? Jesus was the substitute for me. That's usually when we think the gospel, we think crucifixion, and we slam on the brakes. But the gospel, the good news, is not just that he died, but all the implications that come as a result of his death and resurrection. There are more implications. And this is what Paul is getting at. He mentions there is a glorious wealth that he is making known among the Gentiles. But what is that glorious wealth? What aspect of him do you proclaim to people who already believe in him? I don't need to keep preaching to you, Christ died on the cross for your sins. I mean, yeah, sure, but you already believe that. So what aspect of him do we teach when you already believe that he died on the cross for your sins? And Paul says it firmly here at the end of verse 27. God wanted to make him known, make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Here's the, here's the glorious mystery. Here's the gospel that you preach, that I preach to people who already believe the gospel of the crucifixion. Paul isn't referring to Jesus just coming in a body to die on the cross for our sins. He's referring to Jesus being in our bodies to help us die to those sins. You see, the gospel initially is Christ died on the cross for your sins. That's what I believe. But once you believe that, the gospel message is now he lives within. He's in you. According to Paul, this is the glorious wealth of the mystery of God. The hope of glory is that Christ is in you and I. And I'm speaking to those who genuinely believe in Jesus. 
This is why we focus on our identity in Christ. This is where we, that's where we go to. Remember who you are. This is why Second Peter, when he said, look, if you're not growing, you've forgotten that you've been cleansed of your former sins. You've forgotten who you are. You've forgotten that the, the sin doesn't have power over you like it used to because Christ is in you. The spirit is in you. First Corinthians six, Paul says, don't you know that the spirit is within you? You are the temple of God now. There is no temple anymore. The curtain was torn in two. Christ is in you. You don't go to a priest and confess your sins. You, you, you go in your house. You go in your bathroom, in your car. Christ is in you. This is a biblical truth that is often difficult to believe because we don't always feel like that. In a season like we're having right now in the culture, who very few of us feel we're fighting against depression and loneliness. Yeah. We're fighting against discouragement. Every time we start getting back on our feet, uh-oh, schools are shutting down. Here it comes, another variant. Here we go. Round three. We get discouraged. Where is Christ in me when I feel the way I feel right now? But there's no passage in any credible translation that will say Christ is in you when you feel him. The promise is that he's in you and the proof is that you desire to obey him and have the ability to do so. Paul is saying, listen, this is what we proclaim. What do we do? We got to proclaim him. Now, when I'm talking to people that don't know him, I'm not going to say Christ is in you. That's the wrong message. Because he's not. But when you believe in Jesus, Christ is in you. This is the glorious mystery. See, we, we're aware theologically of the incarnation, Christ becoming a human being. But there's an expansion to that where that Christ becomes in us too, in our bodies. The spirit is in us. Paul is expanding the reality, Christ in you, forefront of our minds. We proclaim he's in you. Because when you believe that, it changes how you view things and how you do things. When you don't believe that, it will affect you dramatically. When you don't believe that someone who's supposed to care about you cares about you, it affects your relationship with them. It becomes awkward, whether that's siblings or spouses or Parents and children, it's just like, man, it's awkward. It's like walking on eggshells. You just don't feel comfortable. You don't feel safe. When you don't think someone is for you, you don't feel safe. You don't feel like you can be yourself. And then eventually, over time, you get tired of feeling this way, and so now you start to lash out. But you don't lash out against the Lord. What you do is you lower your defenses, and you give in to temptation in ways that you wouldn't have. You read less, pray less, complain more, judge more, grow in more bitterness. Expect God to now do something to earn your trust back. And he didn't do anything to lose it. 
when we don't believe that Christ is in us, being a Christian is really strange. If we don't think Christ is for us, being a Christian is really weird. It's challenging. It just feels like I'm doing all this stuff for what? When we believe that he's in us, it affects what we do. And it affects how we view certain things. So what do we do? We preach him. How do we do it? How do we preach to him? Back to verse 28. He says this. Warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom. We warn and teach everyone with all wisdom. From my limited vantage point, this is speaking as someone who's been a pastor 13 years and who has a platform a little bigger than just this church, who preaches in other churches, who interacts with other pastors, who, from my limited vantage point, this is where the most offense and the most confusion comes into play in the Christian life. Warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom. The offense comes in warning. Warning is a biblical responsibility. And what it means in the context of the words that were used, the actual Greek word that was used here, it, it denotes to counsel, to warn, and, and, and to counsel in terms of someone's behavior. It means to rebuke, to admonish, to reprimand, to put in mind. And it becomes offensive. Because you see, warnings can't always be done without some firmness and without some offense. If your child is running towards a busy street, you're not going to be like, hey, buddy, stop running. <laughs> you're going to scream and say, hey! You want him to get scared and turn around and look and be like, no, 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 no. Stay right there. Now, you're not angry at him, but you got to warn him. Warnings don't always take the, hey, little buddy, don't forget. You gotta, if you don't honor the Lord, you're going to go to hell. <laughs> and the reason why it becomes offensive, because this is what we want. We want to be warned with kid gloves all the time. We don't want anyone to talk to us in any tone of voice that we don't like. I mean, there are times I'm preaching sermons and I crack jokes. I say all this stuff. I'm in a zone and I might say something that tempts somebody and then that, that's what they walk away with. But they don't consider the fact that in a room like this, I may know more than you when there were people that I have to warn. And I can't warn everybody by cracking a joke. I can't warn everybody by whispering. Jesus didn't always do that. You can't tell me that Jesus was in a boat with no microphone, no megaphone, speaking to 10,000 people and wasn't raising his voice. People needed to hear him when he flipped over tables, when he warned them, be careful of these people. Don't be like them. If you imagine Jesus was like, hey, God, you see these Pharisees? Don't be like them. Now, warnings aren't supposed to, you're not trying to be offensive. I'm not trying to be offensive, but warnings are offensive. 
people walked away from Jesus when he said certain things like, nah, fam, I'm not. Nah, bro. So if I don't believe in you, like, yeah, right, whatever. Warnings are biblical, but they can't be done without some degree of firmness. We don't try to be offensive, but the reality is we just don't like to be warned. Sometimes it's not how a person says it, it's that they said it. We don't like to be warned, unless it's some scam. You know, if it's, if it's warning about somebody else, hey, stay away from them. Oh, okay, thank you. I actually thought that too. Or if it's some scam, hey, if you get a phone call saying, I get these calls sometimes, I got a call the other day, right? And I have fun with this stuff. I'm just like, man, listen, man, you're going to play with me. You're going to waste my time. I'm going to waste your time. So I got a phone call that said it was a recording. This is Amazon.com. A purchase for $999 was placed on your account. If you made this purchase, press 1. If you did not, press 2. Now, I know the scam already. 2. Let's have some fun. <laughs> Hello, this is Amazon. How can I help you? I said, I don't, I don't, you can't help me. You, you, y'all send a, a voicemail saying that something happened and press two. I pressed two. So I've already done what I was supposed to do. You can't really help me, bro. They was just like, click. Because they already knew. Because the last time I tried that, they were like, oh, sir, well, okay, let's, let's get your information. Give us your social security number. And I was like, huh? Why do you need my social security number? Well, we just need to verify that you're, well, can you ask a different question, like my childhood friend or something? <laughs> like, what you mean? I'm going to just give you my social security. Here you go, such and such, such and such. And I get a phone call like, hey, man, somebody ran a million dollars on your credit. And you got to pay it off slowly but surely. Then you talk about Maranatha, Jesus, come back quickly. I'll just preach, hey, Jesus canceled all debts. I mean, I don't. When we get a warning about a scam, we love those. Like, yeah, yeah, but we don't like the warnings that say we're scamming our own spirituality, though. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Those aren't the warnings we like. When it's a character flaw in us, I don't like that warning. Yeah. I don't like that warning. I don't want you to warn me. And if you do, be as gentle as possible. But sometimes warnings need to sting. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Warnings aren't supposed to make you feel good. They're supposed to make you be alert. But in the culture we live in, it's like, man, everyone, you get, a, you get canceled if you warn people. Yep. I'm canceling you for, because I don't like to be warned. People don't like to be warned. They don't want to be offended. This is the age of entitlement where everything I feel I deserve is what I should get. Mm-hmm. But the problem is if you take the warning out of Christianity, then you take out a good portion of Jesus' teaching. Was it wrong for him to warn the seven churches in Revelation? Was it wrong for him to warn the people in Matthew 23 when he was like, woe to the Pharisees. Watch out for them. When he told them in Matthew 5, your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees or you won't make it to heaven. You take away the warnings out of the New Testament, you get worse than the Jefferson Bible. We don't like to be warned, but warning is a biblical responsibility. There are times where we all need to be rebuked, admonished, reprimanded. Mm -hmm. And it's not always going to be done. Listen, I've I've said this for years. A whisper is too loud if you don't like what the person is saying. 
It is a biblical responsibility. And if I'm being honest, as your pastor and as a pastor in the culture, it is a responsibility that people shy away from. And then people, then stuff happens and it's like, oh, man, I, it is not unbiblical. It's actually loving. We're not trying to be offensive, but warning are offensive. I don't like them, but I accept them. And usually, whether done right or wrong, they're helpful. What do we do? We proclaim him. How do we do it? We warn. What else do we do? He says, we teach. We teach people. So it's not just warning them. We got to teach people. To teach, you impart skills or knowledge, right? You explain things so people understand them. You train and you instruct other people. This is what we do. Trying to teach. But in many ways, even teaching can be a challenge. Last Sunday, I preached at my buddy's church, and uh, I went to the game after that. So I told my friend, he, he, he's a senior pastor of the church of Arlington, Virginia. And when he asked me to preach, I was like, bro, you know we play Dallas on Sunday, right? <laughs> now, this may not matter to y'all, but that, that touches my idol. I was like, hey, listen, fam. How, how long do you think it's going to take to get from Arlington to Landover to back to the game? He was like, well, if you leave right after, I said, listen, I'm not staying for a communion, bro. I'm leaving. I'm just being honest with you. You can, ju you can judge me all you want. I'm with Paul. Let the Lord judge me. Tupac, only God can judge me. I was joking, but I was said, but I said, nah, I'll preach. I said, but I'm serious. I'm leaving right after though, bro. So we left, and, I, and, and Warren went with me. So I'm throwing him under the bus too. So, so Warren went with me, and then we picked up a friend of mine I used to go to church with years ago. He's a Yahoo uh, uh, reporter. I mean, he used to be a White House correspondent. I used to watch him all the time. When Obama was in president, he'd call him. My buddy would stand up. And I'm like, look at this dude on national TV right now. So we went to the game. And he said this to me. I said, hey, so how are things going with journalism? And he said, man, I'm getting ready to leave it. Now, he's been a journalist for 20 years. I've known him since 1999. He got into journalism in 2001, 2002. Working, he used to work for Washington Times. And then he worked for uh, Huffington Post. And then he bounced around. And he said to me, he said, I'm thinking about leaving it. And he said, I'm leaving it. And I said, really? Why? And I thought he was going to say, because print media is not that. He said, because the, the country's broken. He said, we live in a, and, he, and he's, he's, he's way ahead of me in the political stuff, because he's been covering it for two decades. So I asked him a couple of questions. I said, bro, I need you to come on my podcast and say some of this. Because I have hunches, but now you're confirming and even expanding those hunches. And he said, the country's broken, man. He said, it's just like, he said, we're at a point now. He said, I've never seen it like this, that where now you, no one listens to anyone, that you can have a blog or some type of thing, and then everyone just believes what you say. And so all the real news, all the credible people who actually know how to investigate and present things are no longer being listened to. And he was just saying he's just frustrated. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And he wasn't saying, he said, it's not going to get better. Like it's only, and he started to, and I'm not going to say all that now because that's not, this is full, but he was saying he's, he's done. He said, there's too many, there's too many teachers. There's too many people teaching and warning, and they don't even have credibility because a lot of them teach on hunches, or they watch a documentary, and now they know how to explain yep. everything. Yep. We're always being warned and always being taught, whether you know it or not. Yep. We're always teaching, always explaining something. 
question is, what are we teaching and what are we explaining? What are we warning about? We teach. We teach. I open the Bible. I study it. I come here on Sundays. I sit in front of many of you in council. We talk. We t- you go in your D groups and you talk and you share and you give perspective. We teach. We teach the scriptures. We teach the promises of God. We teach the commands of God. We teach the stories about God. We teach all of it. But even teaching can be offensive. What do we do? We we proclaim him. Either it's Christ died for you or Christ lives in you. How do we do it? We warn, we teach. Then he said one more thing at the end of this. Verse 28 again. It says, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Now, I said there's offense and confusion. I explained to you what the offense was, is we don't like to be warned, and there's just too many teachers, or we don't like to be taught. That's the offense. Here's where the confusion comes in, with all wisdom. The confusion comes in with wisdom. What is wisdom? Whose wisdom am I listening to? Whose warning and teaching am I listening to? And why is that wisdom? Why is that wisdom? This is where the confusion comes in for many of us. What makes this wisdom? Why should I listen to you? Now, I'm talking as a believer. I'm not talking to, I'm not speaking from a non-Christian mindset. I'm talking as a believer, we can be confused about what wisdom actually is. Even in imparting it to one another. What is wisdom? How do I? I'm going to say something that, I'm not going to qualify, this is my church. When you're in your D group and someone's really struggling, it is always appropriate to say, let's pray. It's never inappropriate to pray. But that doesn't always impart wisdom. That cares for the person, but that doesn't always impart wisdom. It doesn't tell that person what to say, think, or do when they're struggling again. It doesn't help that person understand, why am I struggling? Why does this bother me so much? And a lot of us don't know what wisdom to give, and so it's easier to say, and it's appropriate to say, let's pray. Listen, we should wait upon God for wisdom, but God has given us a lot of wisdom to use already. What is wisdom, and how do you know What you're hearing is wisdom. If we don't get this right in the the information age, where all we get is warning and teaching from all corners of life, if we don't get what wisdom is right, we're going to fall victim to the information age. And then then it'll be one of you making a YouTube video saying you're deconstructing your faith. 
because the wisdom you got from something that wasn't outside of the Lord sounded better than the wisdom that's in the Lord. So what is wisdom? Well, we know Proverbs has a lot to say about wisdom. God cares so much about wisdom that he devoted more than one book, but at least one book to describing it. And the book starts off with verses like this, Proverbs 1-7. Many of us know this by heart. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and fools despise wisdom and discipline. The fear of the Lord. Many of us know that intellectually, but functionally, functionally, we have to question, like, is, it, is, is, the, is my fear more about the comforts that I lose than it is about the Lord that I've gained? We have to wrestle with it because in this culture, there's too much, we're getting too much, too much information. We're competing with a lot. You know, I preach every Sunday just about, but this is only at best maybe an hour message. Maybe, sometimes maybe an hour ten. <laughs> Don't judge me till you've tried it. <laughs> but then that's it. I'll see you next Sunday. Mm-hmm. You can spend more hours than that in a world giving you information that opposes everything I said in this message. Yeah. Yeah. And we're not unaffected because we're believers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We're infected. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs 3, 5 through 12. God makes this appeal by saying this. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not rely on your own understanding. In all your ways, know him and he will make your path straight. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Notice the connection. Being wise in your own eyes turns to evil. Fearing the Lord turns away from it. This will be healing for your body. And strengthening for your bones, honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first produce of your entire harvest. Then your barns will be completely filled and your vats will overflow with new wine. Do not despise the Lord's instruction, my son, and do not loathe his discipline. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, just as the father disciplines the son in whom he delights. So here here God has been laying out wisdom before Christ came. And it's consistent. Trust in the Lord. Fear the Lord. Romans 12, discern the will of the Lord. The church is God working through his people. The fact that the phrase with all wisdom is here means we must consider that you can warn and instruct without wisdom. You can warn and instruct without it. Paul makes it clear, listen, we proclaim him Warn and instruct with all wisdom. That means you can warn and instruct with no wisdom. This is not an American phenomenon. This is the human condition. Listen to this, Jeremiah 23, 16, 17. This is a crazy chapter. You should read Jeremiah 23. Not right now because I would be rude. But, <laughs> but read it sometime this week. Here's what Jeremiah, this is two verses. Jeremiah 23 says this. This is what the Lord of armies says. Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you. Listen, they are deluding you. Listen, they speak visions from their own minds, not from the Lord's mouth. Come and make sure you understand what he said. 
Some people think it's either from God or the devil. No, it can be also from you. It ain't just God and the devil that give, that give false prophecies. You can, you can say things and it just be from your own mind. Not from the Lord's mouth. He says in verse 17, they keep on saying to those who despise me, the Lord has spoken, you will have peace. They have said to everyone who follows the stubbornness of his heart, no harm will come to you. Man, if this is not an accurate description of what's happening today, I don't know what is. People just say a bunch of stuff. Christians be saying a lot of stuff. You can, you know, this is, you can do this. But God doesn't, God didn't say this. He didn't say that. Where did Jesus say this? No, you're good. 2 Timothy 4. 2 through 4. This is what Paul says. That was the Old Testament in Jeremiah. In the New Testament, here's what Paul says. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Look, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and teaching. For the time will come. Remember, this is written 2,000 years ago. For the time will come when people will not tolerate sound doctrine, but according to their own desires will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear what they want to hear. They will turn away from hearing truth and will turn aside to myths. Wisdom is a biblical category. And we live in a culture where wisdom is not warranted. And some of us are afraid to part wisdom because in the culture we live in, we can't offend anyone. The problem is who defines offense? What do you do when Jesus says, listen, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. All this like this little Jesus, gentle and mild. Man, people act like Jesus just walked around and kept one tone all the time. Like, hey, guys, how's everybody doing? <laughs> good. Let me just teach and make sure everybody's good. Why don't y'all have a seat? Listen, uh, beware of the leaven and the Pharisees because when they'll get you. <laughs> Jesus didn't walk in and be like, hey, you guys are making a mess, man. Let me clean this stuff up, man. Get out of here. Man. Let me get this, let me make this call out of whips and get you get out of here, man. Come on, man. Get out of here, bro. Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace but a sword. I came to cause division between a mother and a daughter and a father and a son. I'm not here for the games. I'm here to say who's going to believe in me and who's going to live for me. And once you make that decision, it's going to cause division between all the people who do not make that decision. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And even people who have made that decision but are in different places than you. Whether we know it or not, we're always warning and teaching one another. We get weather warnings. (laughs) We get political warnings. Cyber warnings on Friday, which is ironic to me. Virginia released a warning about a serial killer. And they warned everyone to be careful. That was ironic to me because I released an album called Serial Killer Smiling Pictures. It's rare that you see a warning 
about serial killers. We get warnings all the time. But all warnings are not the same. All warnings aren't supposed to have eternal value. There are warnings that are helpful for us. When I'm driving, especially when I'm in California, there's a lot of like mountains and cliffs. I want that sign to say uh, dead end or cliffs drive slower. I want that warning. I like those warnings in the ground that when you're dozing off and, and it goes <laughs> when you drive over it. See, there was a couple of you dozing off and you jump. Same effect. Don't play in church. I will wake you back up. I love those warnings because they saved my life. But the warnings in Scripture save our souls. When it comes to your life, not just like all the other things, but when it comes to like your morality and how you live, the question you must ask yourselves is, what does this warning and teaching produce? What does this wisdom, what wisdom does this produce? And if we're going to stay in the passage and ask a question from the passage, here's the question we need to ask. How does this wisdom help me mature in Christ? How does this wisdom help me mature in Christ? Now, I'm not talking about, I'm talking about when it comes to life and morale. I'm not talking about if you should Bitcoin or something. I'm not talking about that. But how does this wisdom help me mature in life? Because that's the ultimate goal. When you're listening to friends, I'm talking to believers. I'm not talking to non-believers. When you're listening to friends, how does that wisdom help you mature in Christ? When you're confessing your sin to someone else, are they making you feel good about your sinful response to someone else? Are they making you feel like you're right and the other person's wrong? How is that helping you mature in Christ? The Bible never does that. The Bible says, look, man, take the log out of your own eye before you go tell him about his speck. When you're talking to your therapist, are they making you feel good about yourself? Or are they helping you mature in Christ? Now, there's nothing wrong with therapists. I'm fine with it. I think wisdom is good. But I know sometimes as a pastor, I'm undoing what therapists have done. Because it's like, ah. Uh, and they'd be Christian in front of their name. They're a Christian therapist. And I'm like, they said, what? Oh, wow, okay. Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm not sure I agree with that. And let me show you why. When you're listening to a podcast, how is it helping you mature in Christ? Now, I'm not saying every single thing has to do that, but when we're taking our direction, our cues, we're talking about our life and our morality, are the, is this wisdom helping me mature in Christ? You can warn, you can teach, cool, but what's the fruit of it? Am I more closer to understanding what Christ requires of me? Do I have more of a desire to honor the Lord as a result of your wisdom? If I don't, I may not need wisdom from you. This podcast might not be helpful because it may be making me confirm things that are only confirming how I feel, yeah. not what I must do. Is this blog, is this blog helping you mature in Christ? You see, we don't, we don't need wisdom to make us, to prove that we're right. 
We need wisdom to help us mature in Christ. How much of the warnings in your life are about others instead of you? Who's warning you about you, making sure that you're okay? And again, I'm not talking about being suspicious and sinfully judgment. I'm not talking about that. But if you're always getting warned about what other people do, if always what you're reading and listening to is about this group of people or that people or this person or that person, when is it ever about you? Because the Bible makes it about us. When I read the scripture, it's about me. I don't read and think like, oh, this is for the church. It's like, uh, nah, fam. When I started looking at bitterness, I was like, wow. I was like, yeah, this is for the church. The Lord was like, nah, bro. I'm talking to you right now. Because that's the, that's the thing about a pastor's challenging. You read stuff and you'd be like, wow, I want to teach this. And then the spirit sometimes says, nah, you need to be taught this. I brought you here to help you see this, not so you can help them see this. When are the warnings about you? If they're always about someone other than you, that's not helping you mature in Christ. Because the spirit, the scriptures warn you about you. Sure, it says watch out for wolves and sheep's clothing and all of that, but most of us aren't even dealing with them types of people. Mm-hmm. I can tell you right now, I got many flaws, but I ain't no wolf in sheep's clothing. <laughs> I ain't warning you about me in that sense. <laughs> but we're always looking for, we're always looking outward. And Jesus says, nah, look in. My spirit is telling you about you. Is the wisdom you're getting creating an us versus them? A trust within or a trust in him? We live horizontally, but we're supposed to live vertically. If we were going through Colossians, we'd stumble across this passage in chapter 3. Colossians 3, 1 and 2. So if you have been raised with Christ, which we have been by the grace of God, seek the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. This is wisdom. Does the wisdom you get help you set your mind on things above? In Scripture, the emphasis of wisdom is not about how you've been wrong, but how you should live right despite the fact that you've been wrong. In Scripture, the emphasis is not about how you should be served, but about how you can serve others. We warn, we teach with wisdom, all wisdom, biblical wisdom. So what do we do? We proclaim him. How do we do it? We warn, teach with wisdom. Why do we do it? Verse 28. We proclaim him, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Why? So that we may present everyone mature in Christ. There's almost nothing that we do in this church that doesn't have hopefully that as the end game. 
Doesn't mean you like every decision or you like every sermon or you like the way I said this or you like this phrase. I get it. Sometimes you're just unaware. You know, I used to say this phrase, if you don't, don't go here, if you can't grow here. And people used to get, people, enough people told me they didn't like the way I said that, so I stopped saying it. But you know why I said that? The point of me saying that was because I wanted people to mature in Christ. And if you can't mature here, then we, we understand that you may need to go elsewhere to mature. I'm, we're not offended at that. I would rather have you go where you can mature in Christ and complain about what we do here because some of those things may not change. But people didn't like that, so I was like, oh, I'm not going to say that phrase anymore. But the heart behind that phrase was, listen, I want you to mature in the Lord. And sometimes you go through seasons where you just need something different. I'm not, I'm not, we don't get offended if people leave. We can't get tempted by how people leave. But we get it. There are people that leave other churches that come here. We get it. We don't think like, yeah, we the church. Come here. This is it. It's like, no, we accept what comes and we accept what leaves. But whoever's with us, our goal is to mature everyone in Christ. This is the one value that supersedes all the values we have. Think about our five values. Love one another, increase in the knowledge of God, connect with our community, serve, and give. Those five values all submit to maturing in Christ. All of them. The, way, the reason why we do D group, we don't do D groups, small groups, because that's what you do in the evangelical churches in the West. We do them because we think smaller groups can help people mature in Christ. You can build relationships. That's why we do them. All those values we do because we think when you serve, you're imitating the Lord. When you give, you're giving sometimes sacrificially unto the Lord. When you connect with your community, when we do stuff in the community, this is why Mike is out there in the community so that we can connect and give us opportunities to do that because that's what Jesus did. The disciples went out and connected with the community. And people didn't believe in them. Jesus said, look, if they don't believe in you, wipe the dust off of your feet. But they still did stuff in that community. It's all to mature in Christ. Brothers and sisters, this is not a judgment. It's a statement of pastoral care and concern. I'm not judging you. But please, some of you do not have this at the forefront of your mind. And you are too caught up horizontally. None of us want COVID. None of us want these things. None of us want any of these things. None of us want to be uncomfortable. None of us want to do those things. We get it. I'm not different than you. None of us are. But this is not in the forefront of our minds right now. I'm not saying this as a judgment. I'm saying it as a pastor, as your friend. I have to fight to put this in the forefront of my mind because it's easy to get discouraged. It's easy to focus on what's happening and be afraid. It's easy to set my mind on things in front and not above. We need to have in the forefront of our minds that maturity in Christ is the end game. I love Marvel. <laughs> love it. Saw Spider-Man Friday. My kids want to see it again today. Pray for me. The movies cost a lot of money. but <laughs> I love Marvel. I love end game. But this is the end game. Maturing in Christ. Don't complain about having to mature in Christ. Don't complain about the warnings or one teaching that makes you feel. There are going to be moments where that does happen, 
But to be biblically faithful, we need to present everyone mature in Christ. And most, if not all, the decisions we make in this church are to that end. How can we help us mature in Christ? Ask anyone on the leadership team or anyone. I, don't, I definitely don't make decisions that I think benefit me personally. And what I'm about to tell you now is one of them. This doesn't benefit me personally. But if I think this helps us mature in Christ, I'll do it. In January, we're going to do something slightly different. D groups are going to meet twice a month. Typically, it's Wednesday, but we know some other groups meet on different days. Most of the groups meet on Wednesdays. First and third Wednesdays will be your meeting in your D group. Second and fourth Wednesdays will be me teaching everyone, the whole church, biblical counseling. Over a four to five month period, it may be eight to ten sessions, twice a month, I'm going to walk everyone through a degree of biblical counseling. Some people have already been trained in that, so they'll be further ahead. But we want the whole church to have a foundation of biblical counseling. So twice a month, second and fourth Wednesdays, I will be here in a hybrid meeting, walking everyone through biblical counseling. Then you'll have about 30 minutes or so to go into your groups and discuss what was taught. And then the other weeks, you'll meet with your D groups. This is for the purpose of training everyone to have at least some foundation to do this. Some of the people who did, did biblical counseling have found it hard to kind of apply it in the groups because the expectations are not there. So the hope is that if we're all on the same page, it becomes more palatable, becomes something that we're going to do. Everyone's going to have a, some training, some foundation. And the people that have taken the training, that did the year and a half training, they're going to be able to dive right in and help further along. Let me tell you, this is not fun to me because I have to go through and retool this whole thing that I did. But it's worth it because after four, maybe five months, there is a foundation that has been laid that everyone has access to. You will get outlines. You will have the material. This is solely so that we can be more mature in Christ. I'm going to tell Drew, which I'm telling him right now. This is the first he's hearing this. I was going to tell him on Tuesday, but since <laughs> that I want his leadership team and one you to be a part of this. Whether they're members of this church or not, I want his leadership team, the student leaders, and his other leadership team to be a part of this. Because I want to help them be equipped as well to know how to engage on campus. Because they deal with a lot of drama. They're on the front lines of, like, my feelings are my authority. They're on the front lines of the religious, of not the non-offensive religion. They're on the front lines of my feelings determine how I should be handled and talked to. And it's like, nah, the scriptures do. And sometimes the scriptures will disagree with your feelings. They disagree with mine sometimes. It's like, all right, Lord, you know a little bit more than me, so I. Right. This will start on the second Wednesday of January, and it will last, I'm saying, eight to ten sessions, which would be twice a month, which would end in April or May. I don't want to say definitively yet because I have to retool all of this, and it's a different, it's, going, it's just different. I have, to, I have to spend a lot of time thinking through how do I, okay, condense this to this, communicate this, and make sure that it's palatable. But the hope is that everyone has 
You know what the hope is? Is that no one knows what to say, not to say, I don't know what to say when someone says, man, I'm really struggling with this. Don't get me wrong. I, prayer is always necessary. But sometimes we get to figure out what are we really praying for, though? Is this helping you? This prayer is comforting you. Is it helping you mature? I want our church to know how to ask questions, how to make connections, and do all of it. So we're going to teach everyone. I'm going to teach everyone so that we can proclaim him, we can warn and teach with wisdom so that we can all grow in our maturity in Christ. I am excited about it, sort of. I'm excited about what it will become. It's going to be a lot of work to get there. But it's it's worth it because you all are worth it to me. You all are worth whatever work I got to do so I can present. When I stand before the Lord, there's many things I'm going to have to say, Lord, my bad. But there's some things I want my conscience to be clear. Lord, I trained them. I cannot force you to apply. I'm not responsible to make you apply with you here. I'm responsible to tell you things so that you have an opportunity to do so. And so everyone is going to get this training. If you don't come to the meetings, that's on you. If you have a D group that doesn't meet on Wednesdays, these will be recorded. And and let me just say this. So I told this to the leaders yesterday. This is not optional. It's not like, well, we're going to keep doing what we're doing. That's not what's happening. Everyone is doing this. You still got two other D groups a month where you're meeting with your group. But everyone is doing this. If you don't meet on Wednesdays, they will be recorded. And then your group is responsible to watch that and then go through it together. For the next four or five months, beginning in January, our church can be transformed because now everyone knows. When the Bible talks about being a royal priest, everyone's going to know now, not just a few of us, but like, okay, here's a question. Here's what I need to ask. Now, here's where it's going to be fun and awkward because everyone's going to know the same technique. So when you ask a question, you're going to be like, I know why you're asking me that. I know what you're trying to say, man. I know why you're asking me, so what am I most concerned about? <laughs> You'll understand what that means later. You'll understand what the acronym DFUIAC means, right? You'll understand that. That's the part that'll be fun and awkward to work through. But it's only because when we stand before the Lord, we want to be like, yeah, we. When I stand before the Lord, I got to say, I equip the saints for the work of ministry. That's Ephesians 4. I want to, as best as I can, present everyone in mature in Christ. So I'm looking forward to doing this with you all, and I hope that everyone seizes the opportunity because you're going to learn how to answer, ask questions and diagnose things. We're going to do case studies, all of it. his glory and our good. Let's pray. Father, your word is is clear. And even though Paul was speaking from what he and his colleagues, other apostles, other men that he's trained are called to do, I believe it extends to every 
professing believer. And even though some of us have, like myself, who have different responsibilities of teaching and, and warning and this and that. Everyone, everyone should know how to care for anyone. And not that they haven't, Lord, you've been faithful. There are men and women in this room who have been faithful. I am not coming in saying this is the right way to do it, but this is another way to add to what they're already doing. Father, I pray that our church would, in this next season, take the teaching, the training seriously as best as possible. They will be recorded. They will be available. By January, Lord, everyone will be placed in a D group that needs to be in the D group so that they can all participate. Father, I pray that as you've impressed this upon my heart, you confirmed with the leadership team and then the D group leaders yesterday, many of them who could make it at least. I pray that you would guide our church in this. Give me the skill and the wisdom to, to make edits and craft the teaching and the training so that it's, it's palatable for what we're going to do. And Lord, I pray that you would use it. Let these next four to five months of our lives let us sacrifice enough to learn this stuff, to think through it, to talk about it so that we can grow. Not that our groups have to only do this, but we want our groups to be able to do this. We want everyone to be able to know how to ask questions, to start with their own hearts and diagnose their own hearts. But some of the best questions you've ever given me came from me trying to understand what's happening in my own heart. Some of the best questions you've given me, Lord, did not come from a book or an article. They came from you letting me ask questions of my own motives and actions. May I explain, may I teach, warn with all wisdom to everyone so that we may be mature in you for your glory and our good. In your name we pray. Amen.